When you hear the word success, what do you think of? The definition of success, the accomplishment of an aim or a purpose. I've learned a lot about success when I played in the National Football League. I learned a lot about success in 20 plus years at ESPN. I've actually learned a lot about success on this very platform that I stand right now. But I've also learned a lot about success after going into cardiac arrest, laying in intensive care for several days, having to learn how to read again, and going through severe depression. I've also learned a lot about success by sitting in a chemotherapy chair and battling cancer. And I've learned a lot about success going through open heart surgery. It is the most powerful tool we have is our mind. No matter what your journey, no matter what your decision or circumstance, everything starts here. It starts with a thought process. You feed your mind what you're striving for, what you're trying to deal with, you will be shocked at how powerful that becomes. But at some point in your life, I bet you were asked, what do you want to do? What would you like to be? I was eight years old when I was first asked that. Next time I was asked, I announced proud, so I'm going to play in the National Football League. But I always would hear, put your goals down, write them down, put them up in your bedroom. It's where you start and end your day. As I sat and looked at I was playing the National Football League, those words pop into my head. Find a way. It inspired me to take action, do something about my circumstances. Even when I say it today, I get energized by it. Everyone is striving for success, but dealing with deadlines, challenges, and goals of the competition, pressure builds, and people can start pointing fingers, casting blame, and making excuses in their circumstances. However, when we challenge them to do their part, success becomes the standard, not just words. You make changes, you create a different plan, and then you take action. That's what successful, peaceful people do. It's how you grow, it's how you evolve. It's how we challenge ourselves, it's how we check on ourselves. When you do that, you put people in charge, and they become more productive and peaceful. The key, do you control your mind, or does your mind control you? Well, I'm asked all the time, I mean, what is find a way about? Find a way has inspired me to take action. It's helped me live a dream and fight to live and a lot of in between. They still sit on my wall today. There's not a soul sitting in this room right now that can't do that, no matter what your circumstance is. Do something about it. We are what we repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence is not an act, but a habit. That's a powerful thing. You're responsible for that and you're accountable for that. Individually, we're strong. Collectively, we are powerful. That's why we're here. We learn from each other, grow from each other. I want to thank you for allowing me to be your teammate today. And good luck to each and every one of you as you find your way. Thank you. I appreciate it. Hello and welcome to the Celeste Stein Show. I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein, and here we offer news you can use, self-help topics, and entertainment. Um, I would really, really appreciate it if you would like, subscribe, and share my channels on bbsradio.com and my YouTube channel. We truly appreciate every one of your likes, shares, and subscriptions. Now today, we're going to be learning a lot about life getting through some of its biggest hurdles and finding ways to win when losing isn't an option. And who better to shed some light on how we might live our best lives than the man whose mantra is find a way every day. Merle Hodge has an incredible story of hope, inst inspiration, and courage. He is a top speaker, author, success coach, former ESPN commentator, former NFL player, and a family man. Merrill, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on our show today. Well, Dr. Stein, it's been awesome. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so it's finally nice to be able to, to be on the show with you. Yes, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. <laughs> Thank you so uh, much for being no here. No problem. 
Well, listen, I know um, I wanted to kind of start by by admonishing the fact that you have had an amazing journey in life and there is so much that we could talk about and I'm sure we will. But let's start out with football. Tell me, how old were you when you noticed or realized that football might be a thing that you would be interested in for a career? Yeah, well, you know, I. When I speak, I, I say I have to paint a picture of an era of when this took place. And when this took place was 1973. And people that are around in 1973 can identify with it. People who don't or weren't around 1973, this helps them. Um, in 1973, not everybody had a television. Um, and if you did, it was only a box about yay big. You had an antenna, two knobs, three channels. You know, right. Remotes weren't even around. Yeah. Right. Okay. So somebody that knows 1973. And so you don't, you never, you didn't even have a remote, a remote. So you had, even though you only had three channels, you had to select the right one before you got comfortable on the couch. Um, and we had a rule in our home that on Sundays, the television could not be on. And so um, it was my grandparents' house that always had their television on that uh, we went to, and we used to go to a lot on Sundays. And what I loved about it is they always had their television on. Well, one of those, it was, this was shortly after being asked as a kid, I was eight years old at this time, uh, what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And I was like, I, I, I never thought of that. I go, I would just, I, you know, at eight years old, I, you know, it, it, it widened the scope of my little mind is what it did. Um, and I actually started to think about things that I would want to do, what I'd want to be. So shortly after that, I walked in my grandparents' house and I walked up into the kitchen. The front door went into the kitchen and I walked up and there it was. Football was on television and I'd never seen it. I'd never seen football on television. And um, the Green Bay Packers were playing. I can't remember who they were playing, but I remember going, oh, my gosh, I now know what I want to do. I had just signed up for football, been playing football in the backyard and I had no idea they did it on television, and it just captivated me. And from that moment on, I would tell everybody I'm going to play in the National Football League when they asked me. I at least had an answer. Yeah. Were there any players in particular that really sparked your interest as well that kind of you thought, wow, that would be a person uh, that I look up to and would like to emulate? Yeah. my Well, he ended up being my favorite player, and that was Walter Payton. Um, I, I tried to everything Walter Payton said, did, or would do, I would try to, you know, mirror it or find out what I could do to incorporate it, um, to make me a better player. And indirectly, he, he did a lot of things to inspire me as a young kid, help me, um, as a young kid. But then ironically, I ended up playing for the Chicago bears. Um, but for when I first got in the league, my second preseason game was against the Chicago bears mm. and I got to, I got a formally meeting. And that probably was a uh, – that meeting actually still impacts me to this day. Uh, I won't bore you with the story. I'll just – Oh, I'd love to I, hear the story. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, um, because he had done so much for me as a kid, you know, indirectly. I mean, he doesn't know he's doing this. I still have my Chicago Bear lamp sitting over there. I had it sitting next to my bed. I had a Chicago Bear stool. Um, I had – it was either Pittsburgh Steelers or the Chicago Bears. My favorite team was the Pittsburgh Steelers. Walter Payton was my favorite player. And I tried to run dirt hills like he ran. Um, I had bought every tape that he had put out um, to learn more about him. So in my second preseason game, I, I wanted to meet him. You know, I just wanted to share the things that he had done for me and how he'd impacted me. And it's towards the end of the game, we're getting beat 50 to nothing. So, you know, that's not a good setting to go meet anybody from my perspective. <laughs> um, and But I was I didn't come that far not to meet him. And, um, you know, at the end of a football game or a game period, it's chaos. Everybody goes their, their different directions. And you clearly know what a, um, a team who has just lost 50 to nothing looks like as they enter the tunnel to go back to their locker room. You know, their heads are down. It's depression. And the other side is much different. And, you know, because of the chaos, I had actually uh, – I'd lost contact where he was. I saw he was on the sideline with Matt Suey. I was out in the field. It was, I was in the huddle. And so when the play ended, I looked for him, and he was gone. So I was like, well, in Soldier Field, the lockers are locked next, uh, they're next to each other. I was going to go in, drop my stuff off, and walk into their locker room and meet him. I didn't come this far not to meet him. Yeah. But on my way <laughs> off the field, um, 
just something says, hey, look to your left. I look to my left, and, and he's walking all by himself. He's, oh, he's wow. on the 50-yard line on the big C for Chicago. Mm. So I went running up to him. And when I ran up to him, I was first taken back by his size. I'm, mm. I'm 6'1", 220 pounds. He's 5'10", 205 pounds. Wow. Yeah. And I had built him up to be this, this massive human being. And in reality, physically, he was not that. Um Obviously, 5'10", 205, and he was pound for pound the greatest player I'd ever played. I mean, he was put together. Don't get me wrong, but I had him built up to be bigger than he was. But I stuck my hand out. I introduced myself. I started sharing with him my Chicago Bear lamp, my stool. I tried to run dirt hills like he did and all these things. Um, the tape that I heard him speak on where he wanted it more than anybody else, how that changed my life and my mindset. I didn't really have a neat way to wrap it up. It's the only time I'm not a big autograph guy. I've never been an autograph guy. Mm-hmm. But I asked him for an autograph. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as, as I think most people know, nobody's carrying a pen with them during the football game. Um, right. Other than you have it stashed like T.O. did um, by the goalpost. But it's not yeah. probably the fit. Mo- it's not, it not the wisest thing to ask for. Um, I felt kind of dumb at the time. And he just paused for a second. And he said, he, first of all, he, he said my name. He said, hey, Merrill. I want to thank you for taking the time to come over here and tell me that. That's the nicest thing anybody has ever told me. He goes, I don't have a pen on me. Um, I can't give you an autograph, but what I can do. He took his wristbands and elbow pads off and his headband. He handed them to me. Wow. And I was, oh, man, I'm telling you, I still can remember man. like it was that day. Yeah. And wow. I left, I left the field like the happiest guy in that stadium even though we got beat 50 to nothing. And here's what it did for me on that day. He, he taught me a lesson on how you make people feel. You know, there's value in how you make people feel. And I bet you there's not a week that goes by that I don't think about Walter Payton in that setting and wow. what he did for me and how he impacted me. You know, it wasn't just football. It was, you know, about being a human being and, and, and other people and, and the impact that you can have on other people. That is so true. Um, that kind of reminded me too of a, of a story I had. You know, I decided around the same age, seven or eight, that I wanted to be a news reporter. And even though I was that young, I used to watch. I grew up in Washington D.C., so I used to watch people like Connie Chung and, you know, Peter Jennings was like my all-time favorite. You know, I just I don't right. remember him, but he was like to me one yep. of the best. And so. By the time I got to grad school, I was working for two TV stations in, covering uh, Capitol Hill for um, a station in Fargo, North Dakota, as well as Minnesota. And so I used to have to go over to ABC Network to feed my stories. And so I got on the elevator and I remember you know, riding up and we stopped like on the sixth floor and I kind of just had my head down, not paying attention. The elevator door opened and it was Peter Jennings like standing right in front of me. And I was just, I couldn't say a word. I just, my mouth just dropped. Out. I was like, uh, and he goes, well, hello. And I was like, oh. but anyway, I, could, I couldn't get a word out. But um, that was uh, my, my favorite. Yeah, that's so cool, you know. Uh, to be able to meet the people that you you look up to and admire uh, so much. Um, I wanted to ask you, Merle, how did you end up playing professionally? I know it's a a big jump to go from, (laughs) you know, uh, wanting to do something and actually doing something. So how did you end up uh, playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Bears? Well, one thing I I did actually that I I still do today, still I think one of the most powerful things, that any human being can do regardless of your circumstance. Um, and this is applicable to anything um, because no matter what your goal, dream, challenge, or deadline might be, there is our most powerful tool goes to work right away. That's this, that is our, that is our mind and that is our brain and how so, it operates, how it yeah. looks towards things, how it starts to feed you negative things or feed you positive things um, and assessing the circumstances you know so it starts there and i i did this as a kid because I, I our teachers our teachers said all the time you know write your goals down pin them up in your room it's where you start and end your day and the first time i ever heard that i was like oh my gosh I, that's awesome that's a great idea 
Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna fast forward. My I never had my own bedroom initially when this all happened, but mm-hmm. I eventually get my own room, and so I have my dad make me a wall of cork. So it makes me a wall of cork, so I could pin my goals up. Mm-hmm. Well, what that did on that day was visuals are powerful. Where you start and end your days, if you have visuals, they mm-hmm. help keep you. I, I always ask people, do you control your mind, or does your mind control you? Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as somebody says, you know, when you start thinking about a dream, a goal, a challenge. Does your mind start going, oh, I can do that. Here's what I got to do. Or does your mind go, oh, my, you know what the odds are? You know how hard that is? Oh, my gosh. That's almost impossible. Okay, well, see, that's the balance that we all we all deal with. And we all work um, towards controlling our mind. Well, one of the most powerful things that – and if you did research, you can find it. This is a true thing. I didn't know it at the time. It was just the first time I had ever done it, and I continued to do it. But I realized the power in it to visually see things. That goal I would play in the National Football League, I put up there. And just above it, the words find a way. Those visuals help me control my mind. Those visuals put me in charge. Those visuals now help me do the one thing that's most important in any circumstance, take action. Um, but in that process, visuals are the start of things. The ability to constantly evaluate and self-reflect. You know, um, where are things going? Check in on that goal. Check in on yourself. Challenge yourself. Um, that's how we learn and that's how we grow. And um, I started doing that exercise at age 12. I mean, I still do it today. I'm, I'm a lot better at it today than I was at age 12. But I am grateful for those tools developed by doing that. Yeah. that You know, I know some people do vision boards and things like that. And that's it's a very similar really, thing. Yeah. I, I think you kind of have to see it, you know, before you can actually achieve it, you kind of have to really get it in your head and and see it. And if you can remind yourself every day of why you're here, what are you, what are you aiming for? Where are you trying to go? What are you trying to get to? I think what a powerful tool that is and how incredible that you were able to pick up on that at such an early age and really use it as such a valuable tool to actually manifest. I mean, that is just an incredible story. Um, one of the things I want to take a quick break. And when we come back, I understand uh, you dealt with head trauma and one had a concussion. Want to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to sure. take a quick little PSA break here. And when we come back, we'll, we'll delve into that. We'll be back right after this. A lot of things have come to a screeching halt due to COVID-19, but you should know that the court system in Tennessee is still open and holding in-person hearings for orders of protection and other types of abuse cases. If you have a hearing date, double-check on where your hearing will be held. If you need assistance on an order of protection or temporary restraining order, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443 or visit our website at www.las.org. I had been sharing a bedroom with my brother, and all I knew were bunk beds and fighting when I was a kid. And I had always envisioned, since it's where I started my day and I would end my day, it would be the coolest thing if I could have a wall of cork. I've always envisioned like a kid, just walk in there and I'd be able to pin up goals. I'll be able to see what I wanted to accomplish. Pin up pictures versus not being able to touch the wall. I always thought that would be one of the neatest things I could ever have in the bedroom. So that's the first thing I asked for. I asked my dad if he could make me a wall of cork. Now, his first response was, we can get you a cork board. And I'm like, no, I'd I'd like a wall of cork. And he asked me why. Well, I shared with him. He's like, we'll see what we can do. So in the time that it was taken to get this this bedroom done, I had put together my goals. Now, I still had junior high to do, high school and college to do. However, the goal that was going to sit at the very top of that wall was going to be, I will play in the National Football League. And I wrote it out just like that. I had some time, so I started thinking. My favorite team was the Pittsburgh Steelers. I cut a picture of the the Pittsburgh Steelers out. My favorite player was Walter Payton. I found a picture of him. I cut that out. I haven't cut a symbol of the National Football League out, and I was going to decorate that goal. When my room gets done, and I remember walking into it, I'll never forget opening the door, and the wall that I had envisioned being a wall of cork was nothing but a big, white, sheetrocked wall. Well, before I got disappointed, I looked at my bed, and my bed is bumped up to the other wall, and there it is. There's this chair rail, and there's three panels of huge of cork. Now, it's not an entire wall, but it's half of a wall. Better than a cork board, not, a, not an entire wall, but it was good enough. 
Well, I hopped up on that bed and I pinned up, I will play in the National Football League. I pinned up a picture of the Pittsburgh Steelers, Walter Payton, and a symbol of the National Football League. Now, here is where my first moment of truth happened. And the one great thing about being able to share this message is that I can always go back to that exact moment. I can almost draw upon those exact feelings I had at that moment. When I pinned that up, I started to think about all the things people had said to me, how hard it was going to be, the odds. I didn't know it at this time, but 0.02% of high school kids ever play in the NFL. Obviously, there's some validity to those people saying the odds were against me. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Like I said, I've never understood that. In life, it's okay to have more than one basket because if you're going to go after things, you do have to be all in. You have to be committed. And like I said, at age 12 and at age 8, I was smart enough to know the people that said it was impossible, well, they were lying. I've been watching people on television doing it. But the more I thought about those things they said, the more I will play in the National Football League was nothing more than words on a wall. Those things consumed me. And the more I focused on it, the more I started to believe in it. Here's where the first moment of truth ever happened in my life, and I'm grateful for it. Those words, find a way, popped into my head. I remember find a way. Well, I will tell you what resonated with me at that moment. First of all, it completely changed my thought process. I shut all those things out. And the word I always refer to that still resonates with me today, action. I was going to take action. I was going to find out and find a way to accomplish my goal. My first thought process who can help me? Who's doing it and who's doing it well? Well, it didn't take me long to figure that out. My favorite player is Walter Payton. I'm like, he's got to have, have done something, going to do something that could help me. I've, I've watched Walter Payton play. I've heard him do interviews, but there's got to be something. Now, I'll tell you this. Those words resonated with me at such a degree I had these extra 8 by 10 cards. I got down and I wrote the words, find a way. I moved all my goals down, an 8 by 10 card, into the top of that wall for a decade. They'd sit there and resonate with me. Because there are many days I walked in that room I didn't win. There are many days I walked into that room discouraged. And every time I looked over there, it resonated action. It inspired me to stay on the journey. And we are back I'm your host, Dr. Celeste Stein. I'm talking to Merrill Hodge. And uh, Merrill, uh, what an incredible story you just told us about visualization, how important it is to kind of see the things that you wish to achieve in front of you. And what a story about the cork board and <laughs> having those visuals in front of you every day. But I understand also that in 1994, in a road game against the Kansas City Chiefs, you suffered an actual concussion. Now, how did that actually impact you at the time? I know, you know, things were going along quite well and, and you know, then life happens, right? So tell yeah. us about how that really impacted you. Well, here's what happened in that whole circumstance. It's still the, it's still the biggest issue today. Um, it, it's Head trauma is not the issue. It is care. Okay, a lot of things encompass care, okay? Yes. Proper protocols, you know, playing games and playing sports, right? And before, you know, I, I get too far into the weeds there, let me give you a perspective that most people just don't have, and it's probably because, you know, you, people don't do research on it. You know, they hear the news, and they, they think that, you know, sports are the leading cause of head trauma, you know, especially contact sports. And that could be nothing further from the truth. The leading cause of head trauma in this entire country is tripping and falling. The most dangerous environment where that's probably going to happen is your home. That has more that has more accidents there and more head trauma there than any other thing that you can go. And guess what? Most of the time, there's no protocol in the home. Oftentimes, people don't even know what to do in the home. At least mm -hmm. in sports, you have protocols and care, or at least you should. So, um, and you have equipment, and you have things that, that take place. The problem is, is you see it on television and that's all they ever talk about it. You know, um, the next thing and, the, and probably the most dangerous thing your kids can ever do, ever do before they can put keys in a car where 
major trauma can happen, major head trauma can happen, and even death is wheeled activities, you know, rollerboards, skateboards, bikes without helmets, you know, so, and I try to paint that perspective because, you know, so much has been driven about, okay, football and head trauma and um, all these um, things that come from it. Well, first of all, a mass majority of what comes from any type of disease is an absolute lie. There's absolutely no scientific evidence about that. Um, it doesn't cause CT, it doesn't call, cause brain diseases later in life. But you can have symptoms from head trauma, and that is where they need to be separated. But what happens is if you have a symptom of depression, which can happen from some type of head trauma, they bleed that over into a disease, and that is not the truth. In fact, there's no science to back that. And if anybody wanted to argue that, then just show us the science. You know, Don't come out here and pontificate and say right. it does without the evidence to support that. I wrote a book and talked about all of the science that exists. I launched that like five years ago. And all the science actually that exists today that has been built up and built up and worked on, it even confirms it more so about well, brain diseases from playing football do not exist. There's no science to support that. But going back to what happened, I had improper care. And, and what does that mean? Okay, well, I have I, – I, I sustain a serious head trauma, severe. Now, here's the, another thing people um, get confused by severity you know what are the signs of severity oftentimes people will associate losing consciousness to severity and that is not true losing consciousness is a symptom of head trauma but not a sign of severity mm -hmm. and the best way to explain that is once you regain consciousness is it a symptom anymore no so what is a symptom what is a symptom of how you are able to move and function two things cognitive recall cognitive recall and stability so movement those are the two things that are the signs of severity not losing consciousness so that being said when you lose look to my my cognitive recall and my cognitive ability i had i couldn't remember who i was or where i was for some 12 hours after the incident now that 12 hour window is severe you mm -hmm. know most people can recall where we are what we're doing within a matter of minutes you know, mm -hmm. and if it goes into an hour, that's okay. We're talking about that's more severe than just a few minutes. When you start pushing the window out into seven, eight, nine, ten hours, that is severe. My mobility was not all that great. Well, here's what happened in 1994, even though it was that severe. I was never followed up with and looked at again by that really? doctor. Hmm. I got cleared over the phone to return to play five days later. Now, even mm -hmm. in 1994, that's archaic. Okay. Yeah. Now, and then, you know, and this is not an attack yeah. on the Chicago Bears. It's what existed at that time. Right. It's what it's what they knew at that time. Now, yeah, the Chicago Bears. Yeah. Mm -hmm. if the Chicago Bears didn't do anything about that from that day forward, and they still do the same thing. Then, yes, they deserve to be absolutely butchered for how they care for players. But what they do that the following year they implemented. Uh, a cognitive test, a baseline, and they're one of the first teams to make it mandatory. So they made, made, made initial steps to be better into that area, which mm -hmm. has happened in most places. But just because you have all these things in place doesn't mean they are being used and applied properly. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how well your listeners will know and how much you'll remember the Tua situation last year in Cincinnati on a Thursday night game. That mm -hmm. wasn't about – that was about improper care. I mean, how they cleared him to play was absolutely ridiculous. That's where the problem was. It wasn't that he got the head trauma again. Yeah, clearly that's dangerous, and you don't want that. But he should never have been in that situation if you execute the proper steps of care. And that's what we have in place today. And if yeah. you execute the proper steps of care – um, the recovery and the treatment that can be applied to head trauma today, I mean, which started years ago, is extraordinary and powerful and helpful. But we never hear anything about that. All we hear about is doom and gloom. Well, if you have head trauma, you're going to have brain disease later in life. No, you're not. There's no evidence of that. There's, and anybody to say that is grotesquely uninformed. Um, yeah. And if you do carry a, a medical degree, then you are committing malpractice. Okay, You're crucifying the Hippocratic oath that you signed. Because there's no evidence to support that, none whatsoever. And you have done, not done your proper research to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And to scare people in that manner, you signed a Hippocratic oath to not do that. 
So I don't care. Just and that's what happens. People have an MD and they start spewing. Oh yeah, it's dangerous. Oh, you shouldn't do this. I got no evidence about about that. They couldn't back. You put them in a court of law, completely different arena. Now you get a completely different answer from those cats. <laughs> yeah. But in the court well, of public opinion, you can you can say what you want, and I I challenge people all the time. Like in this arena, everybody gets exposed to their integrity. I'd rather get exposure having it than not having it. And I have every piece of literature that I just shared with you that I can prove. You know, I talked about the the most most updated literature. Mm-hmm. The paper, ironically, is here. Just stacks and stacks of it. But it looked at all the scientific research to play in the game today. And is there any risk of brain disease? Mm-hmm. And there was not one paper that could claim that. Not one. Not one scientific paper. Yeah. And none of the Boston University papers were included because of their low quality and then their inept way of going about science. Um, and since I've written the book, um, you know, Boston University has been into several court cases and they've been exposed for changing medical records to fit the narrative of their CTE story. Now, now that, that there cannot be anything more deplorable and harmful to people than that when you're doing that. How they're still operating, running, mm-hmm. scientists and doctors are still able to function in that arena is disturbing but those are the those are the actual facts of it um unfortunately i know i mean obviously i never expected when you asked me like how how did that incident affect me yeah well i I thought i'd I'd clearly be talking about winning a super bowl um being a leading um winning games and playing a playoff games and being a um, a leading rusher on your team and doing all those things I, i never thought my journey would would take me down this road. But um, sometimes, I think you said it in the very beginning, you know, um, life happens, we get a curve thrown at us, and it's, you know, can we hit the curve? You know, do we stay in that box and hit the curve and do something with it? And once I started to understand it's about care and just the the nasty narrative that has been created that is a lie, um, there's one of two things you could do. You can either do nothing, which I think is actually worse than the people doing it because you actually know the truth and you can do something about it and you choose not to, or you do something about it. And um, I'm never going to stop not doing something about it. Mm -hmm. One thing, um, as you were talking, I know um, it reminded me that I read that you went back to playing shortly after the first injury and I wanted to know, did you note that something wasn't quite right or did you feel like you were fine? I mean, how did you realize, hey, wait a minute, something's not right here? Well, Dr. Saida, here's what, uh, listen, back then nobody gave you, hey, do you have a headache? They didn't outline all these symptoms you need to be aware of and look up. Right. They didn't have a baseline um, cognitive test that I could retake to see how I was. The Steelers did, but I wasn't in Pittsburgh at the time. The Steelers initiated this. They're the first time in the history of the world of sports to ever do it. Nobody else in the entire planet had ever done it until they did it in 1991. And I was part of the group of the first players to ever do that. But I get to Chicago, and that is not part of the program. So I didn't get to redo my test. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any tools that said, hey, do you have A? Do you have B? Do you have C? We need to know that. Because we can't give you a test and all that. Like, do you have a headache? Which I did have a headache. You know, when the doctor asked me how I was feeling, I did have a headache. Um, But nobody had ever told me that that's a symptom that you need to share. He didn't even ask, do you have a headache? He just said, how do you feel? I got to remember, I got to go back into, this is 1994. You know, what information did we know? How educated were we? So what happens is you get it. You have all this education today and you're like, well, how could you do that in 1994? Because it wasn't educated. We weren't educated like that in 1994, okay? That's like like some 30 years later, you know, that that, that took place. So, um, right. but I, you know, I told him I felt fine. And, and so what he did is he cleared me to play. But even in 1994, a person with my symptoms, the initial symptoms of that Kansas City game, you deserved a physical look at the guy. You mm-hmm. know, to do it over the phone is still... Even in 1994, people would tell you that's the most archaic thing they ever heard. You know, that I still deserved the doctor to come see me physically. And mm-hmm. probably had he laid eyes on me, he would have went like, oh, geez, you don't – nah, I can see you're, you're not ready to play. But I, I returned to play 
too soon. And then I sustained another one. I went into cardiac arrest. I was in intensive care for, care for days. I had to learn how to read again. My career was ended. Um, yeah. I went through severe depression. Um, uh, it was a wreck. I was a wreck for, for a long time. Um, and again, I mean, these, these words find a way and ownership um, took over, you know, and set, set into my, thank goodness for them because I, I you know, I don't know what happens if I, I dig myself off the couch because I, I talk to people about, I'm writing a book on, on mental health. Um, and it's called ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And no matter what our circumstances might be, um, you can be depressed, you can have, you know, anxiety, you can have like some mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, whatever they are, it starts with you. It, it starts with you in A, getting help, A, acknowledging it, and then P, do, uh, B, C, doing the regular things to help you get better. Like if you don't initiate it, you know, nobody's going to, nobody's going to come get me off the couch. Right. I mean, and I had no light. I had no hope. I had nothing. My career was over. I had no future zero. And it wasn't until I realized nobody's coming to get off this couch. And I'd had calls. I had people trying to get me help. I was going to counseling and it wasn't until I took that ownership, that moment and started to do something for myself, accept that help, return that call that things started to change for me. Now I'm not saying once I did that, it just, everything went great. No, it was like five years of digging myself out. But people that are struggling in that manner, if you're not going to do something to help yourself, nobody's going to come do it for you. Mm -hmm. You have to start it. And then there are so many good things that can help people that might be struggling, but to really get challenge them to initially do their part, take that ownership step and then engage with all those people and, and different tools that can help you through whatever you might be struggling with. You right. do that. Yeah. There's your formula for success. Right. You know, it's funny though. I've, I've talked to some people, especially people who tend to be in the church or more spiritual, they will say, well, you know, maybe it means that I don't believe in God. If I seek help, what would you say to those people? Well, that's your mind controlling you. And listen, there's different beliefs. You know, I'm not going to, I can't speak on what other somebody else's belief is, you know, and and that's, that's an ambiguous comment from, um, I I don't know that, um, here's how my belief is, is I do believe that I have a responsibility to do something to help myself at all times. I'm responsible for where I'm going, what I'm going to do, and I have to do my part in life. And that's ultimately where I think I garner the greatest faith from is that if you're going to do nothing to get somewhere, but you're going to sit there and go, oh, well, God should have done it. Well, I can't, I can't even tell you how empty and disappointed you are always going to be because I know, and I think most people are smart enough to know what the results are going to be if you're going to do nothing. They're going to be nothing. This is just magically going to happen for you one day. I always believe that if I'm going to get somewhere, if I'm going to change something, if I'm going to accomplish something, I got to do my part. I got to exhaust all of the options I have. I got to do everything I can. I got to find my way each and every day. And once I've done that, damn, it's much easier to put it in the hands of a a higher power. Right. And then wherever that might end up. That's the neat opportunity, doesn't it? I mean, you know, you can't do nothing and expect something to, you know, effectively change, you know? So, right. What a good point. I'm going to take another quick break. Um, and when we come back, we're going to uh, just talk a little bit about uh, your career with ESPN. And uh, we'll be back right after this. When it comes to relationships, there are some obvious signs you can use to spot someone who might be abusive. First, they have a tendency to want to rush into a relationship. They may also show signs of jealousy and mistrust, and you could find they expect you to be perfect and will try to cut you off from other important relationships. They could also be abusive towards animals and children. To learn more about the signs of dangerous individuals and how you can identify and avoid unhealthy relationships, contact the Legal Aid Society at 1-800-238-1443. And we're back in the studio with Merrill Hodge and wanted to um, 
also ask you about your work as a sports analyst for ESPN. So tell me, how did that come about, Merrill? Um, that's it. Actually, I fell into that one too. I uh, I never thought I'd be a broadcaster. I never went out to be a broadcaster. Um, but there was a Chuck Knoll used to have a saying he would use a lot. He goes, "Hey man, um, football's not your life's work." There's going to be something you do beyond this that your life's work. You're going to do a lot longer than playing football. I don't care how long you play. And he would challenge us all to go back, get our education, or work on another platform to help us with the transition. And he also would say, you know, I want you to use this stage. you got a platform most never get. Just don't abuse it. You know, and what he meant by that was, you know what, if somebody offers you something, meet them halfway. You know, don't act like they owe you everything. You know, they're going to give you a chance to do your part. Well, it's a long story, but I, I got asked to do this this radio show that I had been doing for another station, but I've been doing it for free, and this station was going to pay me. And um, they had one stipulation. I had to actually go into the studio. Hmm. now, And I had to go in on a Monday at 6 a.m. This is after a game. The last thing I want to do is get up an extra hour early and go to a radio station and do a show before I got to go to the stadium. But I remember him thinking or saying, you know what, don't abuse it. Use it, don't abuse it. Do your part. And I was like, well, all right. I I signed off and I said, I'll show up. Now I've never been into a studio. I didn't even know what to expect. And when they opened the door to the studio, it, like, it just captivated me. Like, it just, it just, I just sucked me in. I was like, Oh, I'm, I saw microphones. I saw t- cameras. I was like, "Oh my gosh, I love this!" Right. And that that sparked my broadcasting career. Is um, getting like when I went to Chicago. Part of my deal, I did the CBS um, post game show. I had a two hour radio show on Monday Night Football at Walter Payton's restaurant. So you know, part of my deal in Chicago was working on my broadcasting. Um, and and I think that goodness, I had you know planted some seeds and developed some relationships in that process of those, you know, some almost 10 years in the league that, that I go back to, you know, in my most depressed state, you know, nobody came and offered me a job laying on a couch. Um, They made calls to help me, but it wasn't until I returned them and did my, took ownership of that and made the initiative, accept the call and accept the help that things started to change, you know, and I ended up, um, launching ESPN two and working at ES and, and working for the Steelers, being the first player in the booth with the Steelers um, as well um, for several years. And then I, I went to ESPN full time for some 21 years. Yeah. Amazing. Now, you know, to look at you, people may think you've had a relatively easy life. However, oh. <laughs> you know, as one really hears your story, obviously you've had some challenges. In addition to your head injury, you also are a cancer survivor. Um, did that take you completely off guard? Well, Dr. Stein, I can, you know, um, there's, I've heard the news, you have to have open heart surgery to fix something that was life or death. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard you have cancer. Um, I've heard you're, your mother didn't make it. Um, oh. I've heard a lot of tragic things. I've heard where we think we have to cut his hand off when I got in a farming accident. Mm. Um, so I've heard a lot of things that have been overwhelming and and life changing. The hearing you have cancer and you got to go through brutal chemotherapy and they can't guarantee it's going to work still is it was the most difficult thing mentally that I ever had to wrap my head around and deal with. Um, but I talk about, you know, these words find a way like have been, been instrumental in so many ways in my life and challenged me in so many ways and inspired me so many ways to do something about my circumstance, to take action. Um, that, um, I say, you know, these words have helped me live a dream and fight to live, but they're just supposed to help me live a dream. And that's, that's still what they do to this day. Um, they, that's what they did on that day. It was actually my daughter who's the one who, you know, I'd told them what was taking place because my doctor said, Hey, listen, you're going to be bald. You're going to be sick. You're going to be tired. Um, you're not going to feel like doing, I was playing in a basketball league. I'd been training. I was really active. And 
he's like, you're not going to be able to do that. Plus what we're going to do, I just can't guarantee he's going to work for you. It's a, it, the percentages are not good. And yeah, you know, I'm telling you, I, so I was in, when I'm saying I was in a dark state, I was in a dark state. I can only think of two things, chemotherapy and dying. And it was my daughter who, you know, got in my lap after I shared with them. Cause I was like, I better let the, my kids know I'm going to be bald and sick and on a couch, you know, th- things are going to change and it's not what they're accustomed to. And I went right back into that thought process and she's the one that came across the room and she's nine years old. So she, and I didn't realize she climbed up in my lap. She's got a little dainty arms around my neck. She's trying to get my attention because she finally gets it. Mm-hmm. And she says, well, then you know what, dad, you have to find a way. And and I've been using find a way as a parenting tool. My kids come in my office. The first thing out of my mouth is like, well, let's find a way, Corey. What do you got to do? And I try to get, I try to establish ownership in them. So they're very accustomed to me saying that it is because I look, I do like to hear what they thought. Cause pe- listen, I've, I, I've believe, I've believed this cause I've seen it work both ways. I've used it and I've had it used on me. If you tell somebody what to do, sometimes that doesn't go over very well. If you say, Hey, what do you think you need to do? What could you do to get to where you got to go? And they create a plan. Well, mm-hmm. they're better. There's better chances. They're going to stick to their plan than your plan. You know, mm-hmm. unless there's something really constructive and wise that you, you, know, you can help them with that. But if you can build it around something they thought of and, and they, they become part of that process, it, it's just, it's just a better plan, you know, when they're part of it and they've thought of it and they take ownership of it. You know, that's when you, that's when I've, I've always found you, Phil, you, you see the biggest changes and the biggest difference in people is when they're part of it and they've taken ownership in it. Mm-hmm. You you just have so much great advice and words of wisdom here. I, I want to know what made you sort of decide to parlay that into a professional speaking career as well? Is that something else that you just kind of happened into there or... <laughs> Oh, like, yes. you know, <laughs> it was, it was another accident. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say it was another, you know what? It was another challenge because, you know, broadcasting was a challenge that that was a Chuck no challenge shit, you know, find another platform or something you're going to do because your life's working and be football. I was actually sitting in a chemotherapy chair on my last day of treatment. And we had a film crew, a friend of mine had hired a film crew. And I honestly, it's a, you know, I was in treatment for 12 hours a day. And through this process, we did an interview and we, and I shared with him, find a way, how, how find a way had come about in my life and the cork board and a kid and football. And I'd known him for 10 years. He, I was the chairman of the, of the found, he was our director of our foundation of the caring place, a grieving center for families that lost a loved one. And he, uh, he said, man, I never knew that. I never knew that. He goes, I'm telling you, when, when you're done here, you have to write a book on that. And mm-hmm. at that time, I mean, Obviously, they're shutting me down. I mean, I'm having a bad day, too. I'm just, I said, Charlie, if I survive this, I'll write your book. But at that moment, I was just worrying about surviving. Writing a book was the farthest thing from my mind. Obviously, survive. a year later, he calls me up. He said, hey, remember that promise? Well, that took me five years just to write the book because trying to find the right, writing a book ain't easy. And (laughs) once I did that, somebody asked me to speak, and I went and spoke. And there was an agency there and they asked, I go, would you like to do this more? And I said, I actually would. Cause it was a really, you know, here's, I go back to Walter Payton, you know, what he did for me. Mm-hmm. See, when I speak, I t- somebody asked me the other day, go, well, what's your goal? You, I go, it's the client's goal. Whatever the client is, I mean, I'm trying to enhance what they're doing. Right. And then I thought about it for a second. I go, but I go, actually, here's my goal. If I speak and somebody's talking about me, I did a bad job. But if they're thinking about themselves and their own internal strengths, their own tools, and how they can take them and apply them to whatever circumstances they see fit, then, Dan, I've been successful. And then I go back to everything that Walter Payton said. It's about how can how can you make people feel? How do you make them feel? How can you know you can't motivate anybody, you know? But you can inspire somebody to motiv- be motivated. You know, you got. Yeah. And that's what I, I loved about speaking is to is some I'm a product of so many people and to be able to share those and maybe spark something that somebody needs or give them something that they're like, oh, I never man, I was I never thought of that or well, I can use that or I need that. And that's mm-hmm. how it's been in my life. I'm like, oh Walter Walter Payton said that I'm like, I can do that. 
heard Chuck, they'll do that. I'm like, I'm going to do that. You know, I just, so many things like that I've been lucky to hear and, and be around and love to share them. Right. That's just incredible, uh, you know, to be able to, to give people information like this that really can inspire them um, just based on your own life story. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's funny how all these things have kind of come about um, in your life. I did want to ask you as we're getting ready to close here, what's next on the agenda? Uh, is there anything else we might be happening into? <laughs> you well, know? Um, well, you know, I, I, I've, I've been speaking for a while, but I have only done it as a, it's a part time where I could fill it in with my ESPN career, you know, where I could fit it in. And it has become my ultimate passion. Now it is everything I really think or work on. And, um, I'm, I'm building a team to, to help me, my wife being one of them to, uh, to just, um, learn more about the business and be better at what I do and try to impact people, you know, in a more, in a, a more positive, sustainable way for people. Right. Um, I know you have your book, find a way. Uh, can you tell people how they can get a copy of that? Sure. The best way would just go to merrillhodge.com and it's M E R R I L H O G E. And I always have to spell it because it's a, my ancestors spelled everything wrong, obviously. So, and I care, I carried that gene over. So it's, it's, it's two R's, one L, no D in Hodge, but it's MerrillHodge.com. Gotcha. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. That is all the time we have for now. Um, we are appreciative that you're helping us all to find a way every day. I appreciate all of you who are watching on here today. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to my social media channels and on bbsradio.com as well as YouTube. We'll see you again in about two weeks from now for our next live show on BBS Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in.